Hello, everyone. You are listening to A Brief History of Power. I'm Colonel Grills here with Dr. Kuntz. Talking about the American underground today, we're going to Vietnam. Adam, how are you? I am doing great. It is it is not sunny in Colorado today. So people get bored and all they want is variety because their dopamine receptors are fried. So here you are. It's not sunny today. Hey, we we are cold. <clears throat> We've had frost the last two days, but we're going back into the eighties by the middle of <laughs> by the by the beginning of next week. So so, you know, we, we hope to have an episode with you as I'm struggling with pneumonia somewhere around next Wednesday. <laughs> you guys are all going to contract tuberculosis and have to move out here in the end. Yeah, we're so. going to become a lunger. I mean, that's really is. Is there a better way to die than at a sanatorium in, uh, in Colorado? I don't know. <laughs> I can't think of one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, that's how significant parts of our population got here in the first place. It's yeah, I just sort of want remarkable. you to promise to make my grave full of, uh, you know, creek stones and uh, please surround it with a wrought iron fence. That's all I'm asking. Yes, sir. We can do that. Simple request. Bury me next to Buffalo Bill. <laughs> you know, Doc Holliday has just about the same grave architecture. So a, a little, a little more interesting, a little bit less of a showman, maybe but a little more interesting. And he's he's in Glenwood Springs, which is west of here, and I think more beautiful than Lookout Mountain, but that's just my opinion. I mean, we should we should do the Earps one day on the show. <laughs> that might end the show, right? Yeah. Because uh, I think it, this is a curly too, bill appreciator podcast. We can't do acrimonious. <laughs> yeah. But no, that that would be fun. I think maybe to flesh out some of the things that we said when we talked about the 19th century, that there's a vast difference between perception and reality, which is where we're often going and where we're going today. But that's certainly true with the Wild West, because it's, at least via dime novels, it's one of the first to be covered in terms of media and media governing people's perceptions of what's happening, rather than, you know, near, near term, near distance acquaintance with the situation on the ground. Well, yeah, and it doesn't take away from the greatness of the movie Tombstone. It's just the fact that Tombstone is completely inaccurate in nearly every point. <laughs> like, I mean, like so much else, but it's it's also, it's interesting that via the movies is really the way that people generally know much about history. Oh, absolutely. You know, besides that, yeah, there's not a whole lot else that people generally, you know, it's not like they read a book or something. Right. Well, who wants to do that? <laughs> When you, when, who wants to yeah. do that when you can just listen to a podcast, right? right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I accept that we are a part of the problem, but <laughs> we're here because of a larger problem. So I'm willing yeah. to be a small problem that in some way counteracts the larger <laughs> problem. We're taking our own smallpox shot. Yeah, we are. Right. We're, but it, but it, it's for the people. We're cotton mather here. <laughs> All right. Well, so we're, we're moving up to the Vietnam War. And we're going to talk about the origins of it. Yeah. And our big character today is going to be General Westmoreland. So why don't you tell the folks at home a little bit about who we're going to talk about today. William Westmoreland is a name that unless you have looked into Vietnam in any kind of big way, you don't know. Even if you've watched umpteen movies about the Vietnam War, you, you don't know unless you were paying really close attention to a throwaway line. He was originally from South Carolina and was a career military officer obviously fought in World War II and Korea. And then by the time of Vietnam, 
was a general officer and was set up as the commander of the Military Assistance Command Vietnam, MACV. That's an important acronym. And by, by Vietnam, if you don't have some mastery of some of the acronyms, you're going to be at sea and studying the U.S. military. They go in very, very, very big for acronyms, probably as early as World War II, but certainly by Vietnam. That assistance command is called what it is because if you go back and look at some of the things that we've talked about with Vietnam in previous episodes in the series, you'll see that after the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in 1954, which marks the essentially the end. I mean, there, there are things that happen after that. There are troop withdrawals, but that's essentially the end of major French involvement in what, in what had been called French Indochina, which included Cambodia and Laos to lesser extents. After that time, the United States is going to ramp up its involvement, let's say, in, at various levels via various agencies. And the military is just one of them. That's going to include the Central Intelligence Agency. That's going to include the State Department. And generally, the military will disagree, as we'll talk about later today, with the State Department and the CIA about what should be done in Indochina. But we take over the role of ensuring the really the the detention or the or you know stopping the spread of communism from North Vietnam at that time. And we set up and support the Roman Catholic-ruled government of South Vietnam, Roman Catholics ruling over a country, mostly of Buddhists, but definitely of an anti-communist strain. And what we talked about in the last episode was, the last episode in this series, was how that began to fall roughly 20 days before President Kennedy's assassination was the assassination of President Diem who was the last capable Vietnamese ruler in South Vietnam. And the difficulty then is that from November 1st, 1963, if we're going to be involved, if we're going to try to keep there from being a single Vietnam ruled over by communists, the same way that we kept Korea from being a single Korea ruled over by communists, then we're going to have to ramp up our involvement because we have foolishly at, under the advisement of the State Department, right? This wasn't a decision that the U.S. military supported, but the State Department said, "Yeah, let let the what they were called the Twelve Warlords." That was a call back to early Vietnamese history. Let those guys do what they want. We don't need DM necessarily. Once DM is gone, there really is nobody else capable of controlling the territory of South Vietnam apart from the United States military. So Westmoreland from '63 on until we we formally have ground troops committed by President Johnson in 65 is going to be saying, look, you know, if if we're actually trying to achieve this like discrete thing, we're not going to let communist troops occupy this country, then here's what we have to do. Right. And um, it was just going to happen. And that's what a lot of people don't really fathom here. The war in Vietnam, given the political climate of the time, at the world stage, it's it's just inevitable. And you know, following the Korean War, everything else, it was just it was just going to happen. Vietnam is often presented in, you know, 
contemporary textbooks as something that was forced upon the American public, uh, something the American public wasn't into. As we're going to see, for really most of the duration of the war, the public is solidly behind. Yeah, that's correct. Our involvement. Yeah, and and the background to it is unfortunately for understanding Vietnam, the background to it really is understanding Korea because you have to remember that Korea is the last war before Vietnam in which we have a draft. At at least one of my grandfathers was drafted for Korea, and because Americans simply forget that that war happened, right? The Korean War is like the 20th century's, you know, Mexican War. It's right. it's enormously consequential for the things that come after it, but we don't even remember that it occurred. And the lesson that Americans learned from the Korean War was not that drafts were evil or that drafts should be avoided or that the United States should avoid overseas involvement. The lesson that they learned was we stopped the communists from completely taking over a country. That was the idea. Right. And that was so. So the American public is not going into 1965 once we have ground troops formally committed. We have ground troops there before. I mean, it's it's like everything else that we do overseas. We're we're getting ready to fight the war years before. We're obviously and openly fighting the war. But the American public is not thinking, oh, wow, we're entering a quagmire the way we might today. Yeah, and they're they're definitely not ambiguous about what it is that we're doing overseas. Whereas now today, if and I I think this is this is un, this is unlikely. Certainly on the same scale, it's unlikely. I mean, it's not impossible. It's just unlikely that we would commit ground troops to a war, you know, in in favor of Israel against Syria or you know Hezbollah, or that we would commit large numbers of ground troops in Ukraine. We don't seem to do that anymore. We seem to we seem to fund and ship things. But if we did that, a lot of people would be like, okay, we're fighting against Hezbollah. What are we what are we fighting against? And it would be a little murkier. Because of Korea, Vietnam is not murky for the American public for the first several years of the war. They're they're thinking, okay, we're doing exactly what we did, you know, about 15 years ago, about, you know, 10, 10, 12, 15 years ago. Yeah. And it uh and we needed to do it. That's how the American people saw it. We needed to be there, we need to do it. It's post-World War II. In the American consciousness, we save the world, and now we're going to police the world. We're going to, we're going to stop this from happening again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think you can, you can say, oh, I, you know, I disagree with that stance. You can take what was called, what was eventually sort of abused as an isolationist foreign policy and was really limited in the 40s and 50s, certainly, to what was thought of as the far right wing of the Republican Party. These are called this is called the old right by Justin Raimondo. And it was a very much a minority report that, okay, after World War II, these are guys that didn't want to get into World War II in the first place. After World War II, we're going back. We're gonna, we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna have bases on Okinawa forever. That that's a very small number of people. And the fact that that desire to withdraw shows up again on the left in the 60s is really significant as a sea change. It's also significant that that group of people are never really going to be able to contribute to American foreign policy thereafter. But it's important, you know, if you don't understand that how unusual that position was, it's hard to understand. Vietnam was not nearly as controversial when it w began to happen and for several years thereafter, right. as anyone thinks. And that largely, that controversy really has to do with the management of images and, and video 
coming out of Vietnam by the press. If we don't grasp that, we really don't understand what it is that we're dealing with when we talk about Vietnam. Right. And so um, let's revisit then a couple of topics then. Yeah. You know, before we get into Westmoreland, just very briefly, his early life anyway, like I said, born in South Carolina, is going to serve in World War II. Mm-hmm. He's going to be been in the 187th Airborne during the Korean War for a, you know, little little over a year. You know, then we're going to start moving into the period leading up to Vietnam. Like you said, Dien Bien Phu, the French defeat. And then that's going to lead to to our involvement. The The French are forgotten largely after World War II. And their role in, yeah. in leading us into Vietnam, you know, certainly forgotten. We don't think of, you know, Vietnam being a French colony in any way. <laughs> yeah. Which is, you know, that... I mean, one, one of the best arguments, I think, against American involvement overseas is just the impossibility when you live on a continent with people who speak a different language south of you and people north of you who are one-tenth of your population, that you're ever going to attain vast knowledge of other cultures and places. I mean, we, <laughs> we occupy a continent, you can drive through 48 out of the 50 polities and speak the same language pretty much everywhere you go. And so the idea that we're ever going to be like, oh, yes, Indochina, yes, the site of massive French colonization and a significant Roman Catholic minority, that's just never going to be on the table for the American public, you know? Right. <laughs> you know, the the most notable event um, is probably going to be the, the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Yeah. And that's what's really going to wrap us up in Vietnam uh, in a meaningful way and and really set the stage. So. Why don't you tell the folks at home a little bit about the Gulf of Tonkin? Yeah, this is originally a geographic designation, right? For off the coast of Vietnam, you're dealing with a, you know, just a, a gulf that's significant. And at in 1964, it's being patrolled by the U.S. Navy. The issue here, or what's called the Gulf of Tonkin incident, is that in the summer of 64, you have a... Basically, the U.S. is carrying out, we would now call them special operations. You could call them covert if you wanted to be a little clearer about the nature of them. Right. <laughs> right. Special operations, right? Operators. That sounds cool. Against the Vietnamese. And we were in Vietnamese water. I mean, there's really, there's, there's really, it's not controversial what, that what we were doing was, by international law, it was wrong. What's called the incident is that the USS Maddox is approached by and and then assaulted by Vietnamese torpedo boats who are coming out, rightfully so, to fight against the incursions that we're making, right? Now, the Maddox is going to come out of that pretty well, but the issue then is that we then send a, a destroyer called the Turner Joy, and what's going to happen there is that now the Turner Joy and the Maddox are going to be firing on Vietnamese forces. They believe uh, it's going to turn it in retrospect. We will realize that no, nobody was even, you know, coming out against that destroyer particularly. But <laughs> the, the issue is that this will become the pretext for sending a larger number of American troops into South Vietnam. So this is this is like 
if you will, this is the Pearl Harbor of of right. the Vietnam War. And this is probably a good time to talk about Polybius, since you wanted to um, in this episode <laughs> and, yeah. and causality. You know, right? Yeah. What's well, the difference between a, a cause a cause of an event yeah. and its origin? Right. Yeah. And I we we are classical education enjoyers on this podcast for this reason that it gives you a better a better sense of human nature than just studying a relatively limited time span or, or only one culture or something. Polybius makes this distinction when he, he's talking about when Hannibal, the Carthaginian general, is going to be initiating the, the second war on the Romans, what the Romans are going to call it, the second Punic War. And he wants to distinguish between a starting point, which is generally an event that then sets off a, a bunch of other events in its chain, definitely, and a cause. And he says that the issue is that if you only know starting points, you really have no concept of cause. You're, you're still going to theorize about them, but you have no concept. So in this case, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, yes, that's a starting point in the same way that you know German troops crossing the border of Poland in 1939 is a starting point or you know Americans and Mexicans fighting over the Nueces Strip is a starting point for the Mexican War. But the cause of those things is always much larger and of much greater duration. So the cause of the war in Vietnam, or if you want to have more than one, that's fine, is not some sort of, you know, just, well, Johnson staged this particular incident right. or something. It's Thucydides versus, you know, Polybius at this point. Right. Um, and so Gulf of Tonkin is a good place to start in the events surrounding it's a good place to to look at why we fought Vietnam the way that we did. You know, think about warfare up until this point. While loss of troops and casualties were of course always a factor in in victory, the emphasis was always placed on taking territory more than yeah, anything. Right. Not so with Vietnam. Uh Westmoreland's going to say, "Hey, look at all of the casualties here. That's proof that the communists are losing." Mhm. And that's the great debate with Vietnam. And, you know, is is that really because that's how you end up in Vietnam, where we take a hill, wipe out a bunch of guerrillas. Guerrilla, we don't secure the hill. Guerrillas come back, rinse and repeat. Mm -hmm. This is a war fought and managed largely by Robert McNamara, who loves statistics, as did Westmoreland. And so they're basically playing kind of a game of, of battleship or something like that. You know, they're, they're looking at it through a spreadsheet. We had X number of casualties. Okay. The, the idea is if we inflict more casualties, then that is a victory. Yeah. And never really compounding the casualties, though, ends up being the problem. Now, while, and we're in agreement on this and we're going to discuss this, you know, if you, if you look at it from the point of view of any other historic war, we won Vietnam. But the modern history books say we didn't. And so we can kind of get into that yeah. a little bit. Right. But, because, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You're good. Well, you know, it's um it's a case of are we counting the cost and what is the cost that you count? And what is the aim? What is the goal? Yeah. Is the goal to inflict mass casualties? Or and we certainly did that and certainly prevailed there. Is the goal to secure territory? That's where we failed. But it was our own probably our own fault for at some point just going, Well, we've put enough resources into this, now we're pulling out. Yeah. 
if 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 the listener wants to go back to the previous episode in the series, you'll notice something that I think towards the end of the episode, I cited the North Vietnamese Politburo, which is the directing central committee for any Marxist-Leninist state. They were saying after President Diem's assassination that the South Vietnamese and w- with the assistance of the Americans, in, including what's called MACV SOG Special Operations Group, which is semi-famous now because it's been highlighted by people like Jocko Willink, but is the initiator of a lot of extremely creative ways of trying to win this war in Vietnam in the same way that the British had been successful in the previous decade in Malaya, what was called Malaya, it's now Malaysia. All of that is to say that even before the commitment of large numbers of American troops, before the Gulf of Tonkin incident, the North Vietnamese are conceding, at least to themselves, that the Americans and the South Vietnamese are successful in holding territory because in South Vietnam, they have evaded infiltration by moving the peasant population into what are called strategic hamlets so that we can know who's coming in and out of the gate, who is possibly an infiltrator. Since you are managing the guerrilla war in South Vietnam that way or that effectively, particularly along the central coast, you can now focus on the conventional forces of the North Vietnamese. And that's that's what Westmoreland's always going to be counting. Now, the problem is because of their own orientations, the CIA and the State Department, and then you just have to know for the purposes of American history that the media is always closer to intelligence agencies and uh, you know foreign service officers than it's going to be to the military. And part of that is just function, right? Somebody who's a journalist is just less likely both to have entree to the chain of command of a military group and to have military experience. He's got much better purchase with and social familiarity with the kinds of people who are intelligence officers and, and diplomats. So those those folks who are trying to manage public perception in the United States, as well as don't really have an acquaintance with what's going on in North Vietnam, but do have an acquaintance with the political situation in South Vietnam, are going to say, well, we don't really know how many unconventional or guerrilla forces there are in South Vietnam. And Westmoreland is like, yeah, but we're we're holding territory in these ways less effectively since Diem's assassination, but we're holding territory in these ways in the South. So let me fight their conventional forces because I think I can defeat them because they haven't won a conventional war against the French. They won a guerrilla war and the French became demoralized. Mm-hmm. Right? That, I mean, that's how you win when you're a guerrilla. You, you demoralize the larger, stronger group. Okay. But now we're fighting a, you know people that have tanks and, and some airplanes and maybe a Coast Guard, if not a Navy. So let's fight them. And he's going to focus on that. That is going to always be a different focus than what McNamara is doing. McNamara, who I think you pointed out earlier in an earlier episode, his experience was managing corporations in Detroit. <laughs> you know, right. that's, that's, what, that's what he knows how to handle. And, and a significant part of corporate life is always public relations. Westmoreland, by by training, was not there to manage public relations. You you had a great line before we started recording about Westmoreland vis-a-vis MacArthur, and I want you to 
you know, tell, tell the people out there what that was, because it's <laughs> like, that's, that's brilliant. Westmoreland is not a, he's not a political general. He's not a public relations wizard. Yeah. I mean, he's, um, you know, MacArthur is, and I can't remember the exact words I used. <laughs> and you'll have to refresh me on that. Um, <laughs> shoot. <laughs> One of my best lines and it's lost in the ether here. Uh, Westmoreland is what MacArthur pretended oh, yes, to be. Yes. What Westmoreland do you mean by that? is what MacArthur pretended to be. Yeah. So, you know, MacArthur projects this image of a great, you know, mighty general corncob pipe and all this. He had this very carefully crafted public image, but all the famous photos of him are reshoots. You know, he lands on a beach and it's like, no, the picture's not good or the battle's already over. Let's get another shot. You know, it's, it's, it's just like the moon landing. It's Kubrick there. It's staged. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, uh, but Westmoreland is the great general and is the great leader and effective, and he didn't he didn't have to fabricate the image. Yeah, it, it's it's really interesting. If you look for images of Westmoreland, there's never anything as dramatic as MacArthur's quote landing. Yeah, in the Philippines when he comes back to the Philippines and has like a really great pressed <laughs> um, dress uniform shirt on. Right. <laughs> the uh macarthur or i'm sorry westmoreland photos are always i mean he looks uncomfortable having his picture taken you yeah know? even even in formal portraits he's a little <laughs> casual <laughs> you know and, and 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 that is a significant part of modern warfare i mean you know why does Zelensky always wear sort of like olive drab <laughs> sweatshirt right. everywhere you know right he's, He's a head of state. He's he's not even a military commander exactly, right? But it's it's for certain purposes, and and MacArthur knew that. And I mean, MacArthur's dad was strangely MacArthur is old enough and born at a certain time. You know, he's he's his dad gets a Medal of Honor in the Civil War. MacArthur's dad was the same way. They were they were great managers of public perception, and that it's not like that never matters. Like generals can just do their job. And it has no relationship to politics. But the disadvantage that Westmoreland is going to start out with is that his statistics are not McNamara's statistics. Right. And um, among those is the notion of enemy casualties and enemy conventional forces, whereas there's going to be a focus in the media starting from about 66 onward on unconventional forces or, or VC, Viet Cong, which is what the soldiers are going to come to call Charlie. Right. How many are there? Where are there? They could be anybody. And that that's going to turn the situation into one of intense paranoia on the ground and certainly in the United States. Yeah, while guerrilla warfare is um, something and we've talked about it in previous episodes, I mean, very common, especially in modern history. This is where it probably comes into the public consciousness more than ever. Yeah, there's probably nothing before it. And really nothing seen. I mean, apologies to the Taliban, but I think in the American consciousness, they still think of, uh, you know, VC uh, Charlie's out there and punji sticks and things like that more than they do IEDs. I could be wrong on that. But um, yeah. the Taliban and war on terror era stuff is certainly in the public consciousness. But what what kind of the dominant image that a lot of Americans have are still Vietnamese forces. Yeah. That, that, that's the gorilla that at least for a certain aging generation, that's what they picture. And that, and that is the thinking about what we were fighting in Vietnam, which what's interesting about that is it's not really true until late 68 into the early seventies, at which time we have completely changed 
not only our commander, but but therefore also our strategy. Yeah. That we are simply trying to hold ground. And there's um, a sea there's a sea change too, even even regarding things like troop morale that happens uh, regarding equipping the troops. Why yeah. do why are they equipped with uh, certain things in Vietnam that were unheard of? You know, until then, and it's largely due to McNamara's bean counting. An attempt to appear space age, which is kind of you know discounted a little bit. People forget that, and that led to a lot of ill will uh, between the troops and the higher ups, at least initially. It gets worked out by the by seventy five, <laughs> but you definitely have the clash of the old guard and the new guard in Vietnam, like you, like we've not seen since. And you would you would say that Westmoreland is is old guard, absolutely. Yeah, 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 very, very much so. I mean, he, you know, he he's going to take stats into play, kind of like the new school. But I think his approach to warfare and his approach to supplying the troops, for example, is going to be very much old guard. And his yeah. his general outlook on everything. I mean, he he is a man of his time. And in the in the defeat of the enemy's conventional forces, so he's he actually advocates for incursion into Laos and Cambodia much earlier than you know. Obviously, Nixon and will run bombing campaigns in those places later on. But he's going to do that because he's going to say, "I need to go where the North Vietnamese army actually is and counteract them there." Because in open battle, I can destroy them in that way. Right. What What are those? What are some of those space age things? And maybe this is a good place to talk about some of the technological development, particularly with infantry armaments. Yeah, that 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 might might be helpful for people to understand. Yeah. So now it's time for me to talk about the uh, the uh, the M16 rifle. That's right. Yep. Uh, and General Curtis LeMay, absolute psychopath, and I love him dearly. <laughs> And so, the, so the rifle that would come to be called the M16 has its genesis in two rifles: the original a- Armalite AR10 and the Armalite AR15. AR signifying Armalite rifle. Very important for the folks at home. <laughs> not, not assault rifle, as Diane Feinstein told you. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> so what you have is, all right, we're going to go back to World War One uh, when we're using, you know, 1903 rifles shooting 30-06. You know, everybody thinks about Grandpa's hunting rifle, but no, we designed that round to uh, inflict pain on, to inflict, uh, you know, death upon, you know, human beings. Yeah, that came later for the Whitetails. Yeah, right. America is going to be progressive through World War II as far as their main battle rifle, and it's going to be the M1 Garand. At this point, the Warriors are going to come at me and say it's pronounced Garand, but I'm I'm saying what I'm saying. And, <laughs> and so that's going to be a semi-automatic, 30-06 rifle that is going to be replaced by what uh, the civilian version that we would call the M1A for so you're going to use your M1 Garand your semi-automatic your semi-automatic rifle up through Korea that's the main the main battle rifle but then yep. it's going to be replaced by a um, detachable box magazine rifle shooting 308 so think of it as a shortened version of that 30-06 these are big heavy 30 caliber cartridges Mm-hmm. And this is really going to, it, it sounds like I'm just kind of going down kind of an autistic kind of rat, rabbit trail here, but this is a very good way to see the old guard versus the new guard. So um, you end up in Vietnam, they start Vietnam out with with a rifle that is uh, going to be seen as overpowered, hard to control, 
Uh, that's going to be what's called the M14, a very cool-looking rifle, but it's big and it's heavy, the direct uh, descendant of the M1 Garand. Now, they're going to start out with that. They're going to go into it, and troops are either going to love it or hate it. But it's seen as kind of passe at this time. Engineering is moving toward polymers and alloys, and we're still talking about steel and wood and 30 caliber. Right, yep. So what's going to happen is a man by the name of Eugene Stoner is going to design a rifle initially in 308 or 7.62, and that's going to be your AR-10. And that's going to be the mid-50s. And a lot of these space-age rifles that still look very modern to us have their genesis in the 1950s. And he's going to try, he's going to shop it around. The AR-10 is going to get sold to some certain organizations and even governments. But the Army is pretty quickly going to want something a little more controllable, say, in burst fire or in fully automatic fire. And so, kind of Cliff's notes, sort of long story short here, through the uh, influence of General LeMay, Eugene Stoner's AR will be adopted by the United States military. Now, what's significant about it? It's moving away from a thirty caliber cartridge. It's no longer meant to inflict death. It's um, at least... As the legend goes, you know, meant to to wound, and so the thinking was, as they, this is them, okay, not me, that you would, yeah. that you would, wound a guy so it would take two men to drag him off the field, so you got three men out of the fight. Uh, they're going to adopt the military version of two twenty three Remington, which is a varmint cartridge, okay, and uh, it's going to not be a hollow point, full metal jacket because of Hague Convention rules. That we're not really, you know, we don't really have to obey, but we do. Anyway, <laughs> what's going to happen is McNamara is going to see this and his pupils are going to dilate. He's going to love it. You can manufacture it easily. There's no wood, injection molded polymer, alloy frame, of course, steel barrel, because you have to have that. You're going to be able to carry a lot more ammunition into the field. And at least on paper, there's the bean counter again, you know, it's going to be cheaper. Yep. And on paper, it's going to be more effective. And they're going to fib a little bit about the capabilities of the rifle. So they're going to issue the rifle because it's so space age and new, totally different from any rifle you've ever seen. That old wooden steel crap, get rid of it. You can't shoot it. The M14 is too hard to shoot fully automatic. Here's something that you, that'll never go off target. And what's more, you never really have to clean it. And because of logistical issues, they didn't have cleaning kits ready. So they issue the rifle saying, don't worry, it doesn't have to be cleaned. <laughs> well, Eugene Stoner's direct impingement system is very interesting in that the gun operates by essentially throwing up on itself. And so it shoots gas back. It doesn't drive a piston. So this is a gun that needs cleaned. It's shooting its own gases into its own operating system. And while it works great, it needs some maintenance. Now, we've worked the bugs out of it. There are very few gremlins left in the system. It's a version of it still used today. But what happens is they're issued in mass without cleaning kits. And then with ammunition that is not suitable, it's using a different propellant than what what was actually engineered for. And so we're sending men out into a very, very tense jungle environment with rifles that are less powerful, that do not stop people the same way the old cartridge did, and that don't work. Yeah. But on paper, it did. Yeah. And so for this is this is like this is no different than designing a car for McNamara. It's got four wheels. We're going to use this engine. It's going to work. And yeah, for cars, that happens. But there's a lot more variables in warfare. And so 
it happens that way. And so it takes a long time for troops to trust the M16. And because of that, the trust between the higher ups and the troops on the ground is greatly eroded. You're also going to see this in the way things like food is handled. You're going to see troops eating rations a lot more than you did even in World War II. It's kind of cool to go back and look at, say, the World War II field kitchens where they're doing their best to bring real actual food to <laughs> yeah. the troops right? because they saw that that was very important, and it was. You did have that in Vietnam, but but on a much smaller scale. If you were near the base, you would have it, but you had much more you know, further out incursions and a reliance upon worse food than you would have normally. But you still got your cigarettes and your chewing gum, so that was that was a plus. But the, but the AR, the M16, is kind of the best example we can show of a disconnect between the people in Washington who are running spreadsheets and boots on the ground and made through very you know stupid things. It's the latest technology, so it's going to be great. There can't be any bugs. Oh, it doesn't matter what kind of gunpowder we use. And it caused a lot of people to get killed. And, I mean, look, they hand you this rifle. They say it's perfect, doesn't need clean, and... This round, you're going to be able to carry more of it. It's going to be more effective. And literally nothing they're saying is true. The kinks will get worked out, and it will become a very effective rifle. But that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time to rebuild that kind of trust. And it, it it's politically extremely significant that we're doing all of this in the middle of a war that is already difficult to supply because of distance and always politically tenuous because you have to manage public perception of what's going on. We are we are we're attempting to re redevelop the way that our infantry is going to engage in battle. It would be like you know saying hypothetically like the government developed with private industry, say a vaccine, and told you that it was very effective and would have no yeah. and would have no side effects and it would cure your disease and the disease couldn't be spread. And then come to find out, it would make you much worse. You would still be able to spread the disease and actually would probably kill you if you were a healthy person. It would be something akin to that. Right. You know, should anything like that ever happen. Right. Just spitballing. Right. Yeah. And this is a signal difference between this war and previous ones is that it is the first to occur after the mass spread of television. Yes. So you have logistical nightmares. You have politicized decision-making that really doesn't align with actual military priorities or the holding of territory in almost any war. Right. That's that's part of the nature of warfare is that it always relates to the polity it's coming from and that it's seeking to overtake. War and politics are very, very, very related. That's why we talk about it so much on the show. It's it's not just that we're interested in the history of American battle rifles. There's Although we might be. Although we might be, right. I mean, look, I was nice. I didn't talk too much about LeMay and the Air Force or anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, part of that story is also that General Curtis LeMay is in charge of Strategic Air Command, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, <laughs> which, which has a role to play. But, but you know, his <laughs> his sheer weight, literal and figurative, being thrown around mattered more than what troops he himself was actually in charge of. But right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, American Independent Party forever. I'm just saying. <laughs> but what 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 we're looking at here is that public perception is going to be managed much differently since the spread of television than it was when you had similar fights in, say, the American Civil War, particularly in the North. 
yeah. where there was immense tension between President Lincoln and his cabinet, the Northern Congress, and then particularly the commanders, the various commanders of the Army of the Potomac. And all sorts of things would have turned out completely differently if those tensions hadn't been there and people hadn't been aware of them, for example, like who was in command of the North at the Battle of Gettysburg. By the time that you get to Vietnam, because mass public perception can be managed through the nightly news, the way that people who are adjacent to the media relate to the media matters vastly more than the media mattered, say. And there were correspondence embedded with both armies, North and South, in the Civil War. It just matters a lot more because that's going to be piped straight into somebody's brain tomorrow night. Mm -hmm. depending on what you say and whether this guy likes you and how things are going. So where there are things that are debatable, such as how do we supply the troops with food or armaments, or should we focus on what Westmoreland called the war and the other war, meaning the war against the conventional forces of the state he was opposing, North Vietnam, versus the other war, the guerrilla war, which he saw as dependent on the outcome of the war, so unconventional is dependent on how conventional goes. And if he can suppress conventional forces or decimate them, then the unconventional warfare will wither away. And that is, in fact, what was happening when President Diem was assassinated in November of 63. Yeah. Uh, you okay. know, yeah. So that's debatable. So, okay, somebody who's thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away, who's going to vote in our presidential election in 1968, right. does he know that? Does he know? Does he know it's debatable? Does he, you know? all kinds of things, those are all going to be managed by the media. It doesn't really matter right. in some sense what General Westmoreland knows or thinks. Yeah. In 68, kind of a significant year. That's the year that uh, Westmoreland thinks about nukes, <laughs> you know, which is a big deal, right? Yeah. And and then he's going to be appointed as the chief of staff in the summer of 68. Right. Chief of staff of the United States Army. And then, you know, right after the Tet Offensive, uh, Creighton a Abrams, rather, he's going to be uh, the MACV commander after that. Uh, Westmoreland's going to be the subject of a CBS hit piece. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, definitely. And it, it, it has to do, it comes out in 82, if I remember correctly. And it is about something that in the 70s and 80s wasn't real clear if you look at, and I, I think we want to talk about movies a little bit. Uh, in this episode, if you go go back and look at the first Rambo movie and look at all the stuff that isn't the action scenes, and you can see that something that we're fighting about in the 70s and 80s is how are we going to remember Vietnam? And this CBS documentary, which will then be the cause of a suit that Westmoreland is going to win and will cause Mike Wallace to fall into deep depression. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so sometimes justice is actually done. Right. See, you thought we were going to go after Walter Cronkite, but this is a Mike Wallace teardown today. Well, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, Cronkite what is even before this. And I, right. I really it's really unfortunate when people are like, I wish that we could just go back to the news being, you know, and imagine it's like, this. A guy just gets up and reads the news <laughs> and people made up their own minds. Yeah. He's so just, he probably weren't psyoped in 69 by Walter. Yeah, Cronkite. totally. Yeah. He's just telling you what's going on in Vietnam that day. Of course, that's all that's happening. It is that this it, significantly, this documentary, it, it's trying to manage was Westmoreland undercounting the number of guerrillas. And what's hilarious about this is, how could anyone ever possibly know a decade later 
with mm-hmm. a completely different government in control, how many were go how many were there? And what came out as the truth was no, Westmoreland was not undercounting the number of guerrillas. He thought that the media would misuse the count that his people made of how many guerrillas were in South Vietnam or or were staging incursions into South Vietnam. And therefore he didn't tell them. So, right. so the real, the truth of the matter was simply that Westmoreland didn't trust the media. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, but it was an attempt to ruin the man's legacy roughly a decade after he had retired altogether. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, because you know, you're looking seven, eight years after Vietnam kind of leads us into the, to the movie question because you're yeah. seeing more movies come out about it, more TV shows about it. You know, Vietnam is always and will always be seen as more sinister than, say, Korea. You don't get a mash, even though the I would argue the movie mash is very sinister. The the TV show is kind of, although dark, sort of a funny sitcom. And that's what everybody yeah, associates right. with the Korean War now. Yep, that's v- right. Vietnam doesn't really have that. No. Um, it has a slew of very dark media <laughs> uh, projecting it in the in the 70s. And so, yeah, I mean... It, can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, let's go. That, yeah. Yep, let's do it. So you think about World War II movies, ones made you know, during and then after, almost always pro-American. While they might deal with heavy subject matter, they, they tend to be more inspirational movies by and large. Yeah. The Vietnam era movies come out at a time where cinema was changing. And so we have the fall. I mean, the studios never completely go away, but you have the fall of the studio system. You have the rise of the independent filmmaker. So you have movies like Easy Rider. You have films that are made uh, lower budget, but in a different way. Uh, They're lower budget art pieces rather than lower budget popcorn movies. So they're not just trying to make a quick buck. They're allegedly trying to make an artistic statement, which leads to the style, you know, that we call cinema verite, which is to try to show a more natural image. And we talked about that a couple episodes ago. Yeah. This more... You want to be perceived, we talked about it with regard to method acting and performance, but now this is the lens trying to capture something more natural. And while it might not capture the truth, it captures something that looks real, which is more powerful than as an image than than truth sometimes. Yeah. It can project, you know. <laughs> yes, right, exactly. But but you look at, okay, so what are big, you know, movies that deal with, with Vietnam, you know, pre and post? I mean, something like Hair. All right, but more significantly, something like Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now or Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter or even something like the forgotten horror film Death Dream. That would be uh, Bob Clark's little gem there, Death Dream, where a presumed dead Vietnam soldier comes back home and he's crazy. Check it out. It's, it's trash, but go go watch it anyway. So a little horror film from 74 very dark films, very negative. I mean, you don't watch Apocalypse Now and especially The Deer Hunter and come away feeling pretty good. Right. And we're still in the 70s at this point. We're not even getting into Full Metal Jacket or or, or things like that. You know, the only really rah-rah kind of film you have from the Vietnam era is going to be 68. That's going to be John Wayne's The Green Berets. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and he was just doing for Vietnam what he had done for World War II with Sands yeah, of Iwo Jima. Right. Which which so, the, which was completely yeah. uncontroversial. Nobody was like, "Oh yeah," and remember remember that that shill John Wayne when he made Sands of Iwo Jima. 
Remember how we were all against that? Instead, that becomes part of an iconic moment in American photography yeah. is the raising of the colors, but no such thing for Vietnam. Right. And and you really can't, you, you find very few examples. And so you do have Apocalypse Now, the deer hunter. You know, you might want to, you might say objectively great films, although Apocalypse Now is debatable. Uh, the deer hunter, I mean, masterpiece, but how many times can you watch it? <laughs> you know, and, and and these very dark Vietnam movies come out in a great, depending on your perspective, a decade of American cinema. I mean, you get the Godfather in there. You get a lot of crap too, but, but what you have is the rise of the auteur filmmaker. So now dark anti-war movies are elevated to high art, right? So, yeah. so now it's, it's becoming a culture. So where let's say in the late sixties, it was seen as yeah, cool to be a hippie in some circles. Okay. Whatever. But now the upper class are free to pretend that they know art and free to take on the views that would have belonged to the counterculture about a decade before, right? Less than a decade before. And so it legitimizes a view of Vietnam among a wealthy and influential artistic class, as well as for some people at the, at the rank and file level at the kind of middle class level. And one, one of the most profound points that I can recall from a book that that's full of them, which is Christopher Caldwell's age of entitlement. I've recommended it several times before on the show is that Vietnam is the first war that we fight where we have a giant class distinction between mm -hmm. who's in it and who's not. Sure. And that's that's going to be visible on any boarding school or uppity colleges, memorial plaques in whatever it's chapel well, why, or chapel. Why do equivalents. we talk about nearly every time that we talk about draft draft dodging? Yeah. It's never in relation to some politician from World War II or even Korea. No. It's no, all, no. always Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, World War II, people from Hollywood are yeah. without a shred of irony in combat units. Yeah, they're, they're, and it's not they're not doing the Elvis thing either. No. They're like Jimmy Stewart's <laughs> dropping bombs, you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah, um the pride of Indiana, Pennsylvania. Right. But Vietnam is the first one where and and I would I would pick up the Caldwell book if you haven't read it. But Vietnam is the first one where college and and we should point out seminary are places that you can hide out mm -hmm. until you are free from being drafted. Right. You can go there. Now, we the, Lutherans the, might have been guilty of this um, oh, using, <laughs> uh, I mean, using the, a the, little bit earlier using some for, for German reasons. But yeah, we were yeah. certainly look at the state of the Synod at the time of Vietnam. And don't be surprised what you find as far as, as who's at our seminaries. Yeah. I mean, the the enrollments are enormous. Yeah. You and, know, the, the, and the, at the, least part of that, it's it's not because it's not all because of the great growth post 50s or no. 50s and beyond uh, uh there is a chunk of it that has to do with the war going on that's right yeah because a kid who is born in 1950 is just starting seminary in 1970 he's not in seminary in 1968 correct so you're, you're dealing with a a giant class distinction between the professional slash educated classes yeah. skipping the vietnam war by and large and everyone else being subject to the draft. Yeah, I and, mean, you think of just in our own family, so the number of people who were drafted or in danger of the draft, and not to get too personal, I don't know that, you know, like, was your dad drafted? My dad was he... too young, but because we were getting rid of our manufacturing base, he volunteered in 1975. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, your dad's younger than mine. So my dad gets drafted, 
and is all set to go. And then Nixon has the drawdown. Yeah. And so he misses it because of that. Right. It was like, it was like he had his ticket, like his, his, his lottery number was like four. He was going. And, uh, and so thanks Nixon. I, I, <laughs> I, I directly can thank Richard Nixon for my existence probably. So that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. And <laughs> this is, this is not a, this is not a, you know, everything about drafts is amazing podcast. It's just that obviously your country is going to be fundamentally changed if something that in the civil war was the reserve of extremely wealthy men, including Teddy Roosevelt's dad, that they could buy off or get out of being drafted. Okay. Yeah. And but we, you, you know, there are a tremendous number of uh, involuntary soldiers who were killed. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, at the height of Vietnam, we have over half a million troops and there are large numbers of deaths. You don't, even something like the war on terror, which I'm using as the, you know, the, the catch all term. Yeah, sure. Yeah. We've been in the desert for a lot longer than Vietnam with a lot less casualties. Right. Right. And, and so our generation, Dr. Kuntz doesn't, we don't have the, the number of friends who don't come back in the way that our, say our parents' generation did. And I don't think that's insignificant. That's not to say, that's not to um, justify Cronkite or anything. It's just to say the impact at home of Vietnam nearly every direction you look is much bigger. Yes. And yeah. And it's not to justify Cronkite because if I went back to talking about causes, I I'm with, you know, Mr. Republican, Bob Taft on how we should be conducting foreign policy. I'm with, I'm with Alfred Ray Winkle and Walter A. Meyer on, and Charles Lindbergh on entry into world war II. But the thing that's going to be really significant for America going into the 70s and 80s, and, it, and it's you talking about auteur theory that made me think of this, is that the upper classes who didn't participate in the Vietnam War, and that that includes most of the clergy of that age, for example, yeah. in any church, the upper classes are going to think about this country vastly differently and the war that was fought than the people who actually fought the war. Yeah, and they're the upper class are fighting a virtual war. Yeah. Right. In a way that we won't see that we wouldn't see until the modern era or until the current era where they're fighting a war on paper and they're fighting a war from far away. Right. And I'm not talking about the early drones that were used in Vietnam. <laughs> although <laughs> right. you, you, although I think that does play directly into warfare today. Yeah. Where we can fight a war with remote controls from another continent. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the, some of the things that are now common, which is this combination of incredible, incredibly superior air power with very highly targeted incursions by highly trained special operations forces are, are being pioneered already before the Tonkin Gulf incident in Southeast Asia by us. Yeah. So that's, that is, <laughs> that is part of the explanation for why general LeMay, in addition to just being like, an animal and dominating all rooms <laughs> that he entered. That is an explanation for why he had so much input on the new battle rifle. Yeah, absolutely. And so we were never going to get out of Vietnam the way we got out of Korea. And in our last few minutes here, let's go back to the media and talk about why that is. Yeah. And this is where, you know, when you do history, you need to do it from the past of the past that you're studying. You need to look at its past in order to understand it rather than look at how it was remembered later. So before you watch Platoon, you should go learn something about the <laughs> Korean War. And the thinking on the part particularly of the military was that we would be able to attain either victory over North Vietnam 
or the sort of stability that we attained, but but victory was even more likely because we didn't see Chinese communist incursion into North Vietnam as highly likely in favor of North Vietnam the way they had done with North Korea. So those were the two options on the table. And it's why the, the Tet Offensive in 1968 and the battles in addition to or alongside of that in Southeast Asia are such a watershed for understanding what's going on. Because at that point, Westmoreland feels that he has attained stability in the situation. So if we went into some kind of unending ceasefire, like we have with the two Koreas, we would be able at that point as of six, that 68 would be our 1953. Mm -hmm. We didn't win, but we definitely didn't lose. And we inflicted so many casualties that they simply stopped fighting. Militarily, he sees that as having been achieved. Mm -hmm. In June of 68 is when he gets essentially fired upstairs, as you mentioned earlier, and recalled to Washington. And one of his subordinates, Creighton Abrams, is put in charge of the situation. The significance there is that the Johnson administration, in order to get elected, well, okay, reelected, let's say, that 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 the Democratic candidate would be re, would be elected in '68. Let's say it that way. The Johnson administration is seeking to minimize casualties at all costs. So the number that's being counted here is not the amount of ground controlled or the number of enemy casualties, but simply the kinds and number and the optics. A, a word that doesn't exist yet in American English, but we know what it means now that the optics of the war on the evening news would appear favorable to the Democratic Party as we move into the summer and fall of 1968, including the presidential election that year. So war and politics are always intertwined. And Westmoreland and his strategy of relatively conventional focus on conventional warfare that doesn't specifically seek to minimize casualties. I mean, tell me how many people died in Korea, for example. We don't know that mm -hmm. generally because we didn't focus on it and we never do. That his focus is wrong. Uh, the things that he's counting are wrong uh, or misguided. And we need somebody who's going to seek to minimize American casualties. That will, in fact, be the position of both major party candidates in 1968. And we'll talk in a future episode about Nixon's strategy of what's called Vietnamization. But Johnson was already pursuing it even before he left office. So Westmoreland is in the way of that and needs to be promoted upstairs, fired upstairs, you might say, kicked upstairs to being army chief of staff with no more day-to-day -day control over operations in Southeast Asia. Well, we're coming up on our last couple of minutes. Anything you'd like the listeners to uh, to take away or anything else we'd like to uh, remind them of? Yeah, a couple of things is that we always seek to integrate the changes in pop culture and media, both of an explicit entertainment nature as well as, well as news media, which which is, I think, just a branch of entertainment media. To integrate those things with the course of American history, because if they're always somehow related, what was coming over the telegraph and, and printed in the newspaper did, did influence the war in the United States against the Confederate States and the Civil War because of media saturation and especially, I think, the power of the moving image. It matters so much more for Vietnam. And if 1968 is 
parallel in this way to 1864 when there was a presidential election and the US was not sure, certainly not both parties were sure that they wanted to continue the war against the Confederacy. The reason that 1968 becomes a kind of high watermark for American involvement and control in Southeast Asia on the ground is precisely because of the power of media. A, an interesting book, uh, or really a, a pair of, of books on this by a guy who I believe teaches at Hillsdale named Mark Moyar, M-O-Y-A-R, called Triumph Forsaken and Triumph Regained, are about everything up to 1968. I don't know if he's writing a third volume, but 68 matters and we're stopping at 68, not only because President Nixon is going to bring in a completely different foreign policy, and it might be helpful to know for upcoming episodes that although Nixon was not nearly as beloved as clean Jean McCarthy by the media in 1968, he was certainly not reviled because he was understood as kind of a pragmatic peace candidate, mm -hmm. not an idealistic one, but a pragmatic one. And that he would improve our relations, and this is part of his strategy in going to China in the 70s, with communist countries and seek a worldwide detente, and we would no longer have to prosecute ground wars. So Nixon, if you're looking at the past from its own past rather than from our present, Nixon was a figure of great hope for many people, also on parts of the left. And the reason he was right-wing in any way, understood as such at the time, was really because of domestic problems, the breakdown of domestic law and order, which we're going to talk about with the rise of crime and the decay of American cities as we go forward in the series. Well, very good. Well, this has been a brief history of power. Colonel Grills here with Dr. Kuntz. You know where to find us.